How dare you say I'm that? I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm offended because you so you started. You threw punches first. <laughs> I, I said say. that my editing was tighter than Charisse's. And then I said that I... As of Monday. I threw shade at you to Stanley. You didn't even let me defend myself. Well, yeah, you weren't I in the room. I said it to your face at least. The, well, now I'm saying it to your face. We have opposite <laughs> feelings. So for people who don't know, um, Eugene and I take turns editing, making it up. So, for example, 168 was edited by Eugene. 167 was edited by me. That means this week's, what you're currently listening to, I will have edited. And we both think that the other person lets too much stuff slide. But most people also say that it's well edited. I also don't think people realize that two different people edit it, which means there's not enough of a distinction that people have clocked on. I mean, it sounds the same because it's recorded in the same place and the same yeah, presets. I mean, the tonality is the same. Yeah. What Eugene and I are referring to in terms of like letting stuff slide is content. So there are some things that I'll cut out that Eugene doesn't. And there are things that he cuts out that maybe I don't. It's just taste. It's fine. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Make It, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. My article this week is, This designer is reimagining menswear from a trans perspective, as seen on the publication Them. This story and interview by Michael Love Michael explores the story of Willie Norris, a New York-based trans woman designer. So for the last half decade or so, Willie has been the director of design at Outlier. If you're unfamiliar with Outlier, it's a brand that I actually really like a lot. I'm wearing their shorts and they're... Eugene's been like a day one fan. Yeah. And we've done a story on the two stories. Two stories. One of the first ones ever on making was an Outlier story. Yep, that's correct. The reason why I like it so much is that it's a brand that focuses a lot on textile R&D, as well as um, just the way they, they manufacture their clothing. And it's done in a way where it's not necessarily just plain Jane, like something you'd buy off the shelf of Uniqlo. It actually has a, a perspective and a point of view to it. And I'd go as far as to say it definitely has this sense of timelessness to it, where you could buy something from two years ago and it would just as easily fit into yeah. what you buy tomorrow. I agree. To say two more things that I like about Outlier is one is that I feel over their time, they've never really tried to blow up in scale. Not to say that they don't try to attract other consumers, but just not in this really, you know, yeah. grow quick type way. And the other thing that I think is true about them is they really do engage with the people who wear their clothing yeah. in a personal way. Like I actually know who it is who's buying and wearing this. There's actually two other points that I failed to mention that I think are relevant. They were arguably a direct-to-consumer brand before that was a trendy thing. Like, they right, never had a storefront. They never did yeah, yeah, yeah. real wholesale. Yeah, but to right? say DTC nowadays is to, like, give people an idea of what a brand is. And I don't think Correct. Outlier is that 
Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then secondly, they never really prescribed to having seasons. Like they would have exclusive releases, but there are certain core items they have that when they're sold out, they just re-up on them. They just, you know, put in another order. And then, you know, a few months later, you can reorder that same garment. So tell me more about Willie Norris. So in 2019, Willie launched Willie Norris Workshop as a very direct way for her to present strong messages that she believed in. So for example, one of her most iconic pieces was this shirt that simply said, promote homosexuality. And I'm actually going to read the manifesto off the Willie Norris site. Working under the manifesto of queer entrepreneurship as a means of defense, I aim to celebrate, honor, and indulge queer identity by prioritizing the collective capital of LGBTQ plus people rather than the external forces that seek to capitalize on them. I view queerness in the words of L.A. Kaufman as more of a posture of opposition than a simple statement about sexuality. And I'm constantly interested in decentering static and stable conceptions of business structures, particularly how queer principles can exist at the core of businesses operating within the apparel industry. And then over the course of uh, her time with Willie Norris Workshop, she's actually collaborated with likes of Helmet Lang on a project called Helmet Language. Overall, I think what's most interesting about this is that there's a really strong synergy that exists between Outlier and Willie Norris, right? And I think that synergy is done in a, a really, I guess, harmonious way where I think that there's a very clear identity to what Outlier represents, yet it's set up as a brand in a way where there's these channels that can, where it can operate, introduce new ideas and things, right? And even from a clothing perspective, they have not really a subline, but they do have these drops that they dub experiments that aren't things that are necessarily going to be included within the full-time collection, but they're just opportunities for them to experiment. Over the course of the interview, what I think is most interesting is just like understanding the perspective. And the reason why I picked this topic was, you know, before I even read the interview, I just had this idea in my head of what does it mean for you to design when there is, I don't know if a change in sexuality is the right way of putting it, but it's more like the perspective you have may or may not change. And that was really like just the the base level foundation of where I started this conversation with myself, mm. right? It wasn't about like, oh, I bet you they're going to do this or I bet you they're going to do that or this is how we're going to look at it. It was more like questioning that very thought. Of whether the work you do changes depending on your personal gender identity. Correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, like I was telling Sharice off air, I was like, I'd met Willie in passing, you know, a few years ago. I I know of Outlier from a certain era. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was necessarily looking for this flipping of the switch. It was more about as maybe Willie becomes more comfortable and starts transitioning. Does that inherently change the design ethos or the the aesthetic of Outlier? I mean, it is about gender identity, but in general, it's about how much you are immersed in thinking about something Mm -hmm. and whether that is part of influencing your work. I'm not to make light of transitioning. I think that's definitely a really important thing in someone's life. But to go for another example that isn't about transitioning would be like, let's say you became a parent. And so you think a lot about being a parent, right? And if the work that you already do involves including your personal thoughts into it, then I think that would definitely become part of your work. Mm -hmm. So I think that's in the same way, it's like very natural, you know, like this is what Willie's been thinking about, 
more recently over the last two years so yeah. that it is naturally a part of the designs makes a lot of sense. In fact, yeah. if it wasn't there, I think that would be odd. I guess there could, there's a difference like, oh, how deliberate is it or not? And I think actually for Willie Norris Workshop and Outlier, there's a very deliberate intention with their upcoming campaigns and clothing to go with these new thoughts that Willie is happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. But even if they didn't make it deliberate, I would assume that there would still be a difference in like the work yeah. they were producing. Well, I think one thing that may or may not influence it is that Willie Norris Workshop on its own is already a vehicle for Willie's own ideas. So it doesn't necessarily need to run through Outlier. Like all it doesn't ideas. necessarily, but in the interview, Willie talks yeah. about it with Michael Love Michael about how supportive Correct. Outlier has been. Yeah. And Willie said, actually, if they weren't supportive, I probably would have moved on and not because of any bad feelings, but just because like, this is what I'm interested in exploring. And yeah. if it's better that I explore it on my own, then I'm prepared to do that. But because Outlier was so like, well, let's do it, yeah. then they did it together. Well, and well, that's kind of like a great, symbiotic relationship yes. yeah 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 i mean before you go any further like one thing i want to talk about yeah, is just like maybe talk a little bit about the interview and then also come back to my, my takeaway from it all part of me also was interested in this topic on the basis of just like brands how brands exist how they position themselves how their messages can change over um the course of their their lineage etc yeah sure I, w I want to read actually a passage and an answer within the interview which i think actually sums up quite nicely brings us into sort of the mindset and world of of willie i want to set myself up as someone who can reflect that your ideas as a designer are super valid we don't have to make genius masterpiece collections real honest work is the most radical thing you can do there's so little radical honesty in fashion and in the world honestly it might always be this way because it gives fashion some mystery and makes people come around but i always want to encourage people to do their own fucking thing your work is not less valid than anyone else just because it's different. That to me is like so truthful, right? I think that we've gotten to the point where fashion itself has existed primarily as a business more so than a creative outlet. Like I think that dynamic has shifted where it's primarily in the court of business. So you create things that sell, yeah. not things that necessarily have some sort of honesty or some sort of message behind it, which I think is why a lot of the sort of small releases that Willie did were so well received because they were just honest. Right? Yeah. It's funny because the things that brands make to sell do sell well, but at the same time, I think consumers can definitely tell the difference between something that's made with radical honesty, as Willie puts it, and something that was made because people are going to buy yeah. it. Yeah. The one thing I do recognize over the course of just reading the interview is that I think that there's been so much thought put into it and i think honesty itself is a byproduct of clarity of thought so the more you understand something the easier it is to be honest because you've kind of reflected on everything and you've understood most oh, i'm not gonna totally say all agree. right you know when you're having an argument with someone and they're not making sense oftentimes it's not that they are deliberately trying to lie to you or deceive you it's that they haven't thought through what their stances and what mm -hmm. they believe in and that's why you get stuck in like that argument where they're not making sense because they don't even know what they're arguing for a lot of people look at what we do with making and like oh I, I appreciate how you share the process or the transparency and i think the reason why it comes so naturally to us is because 
behind the scenes, there's a lot of conversations we have either with ourselves or with sort of like team, right? To arrive at potential outcomes. You know, we're always thinking to ourselves, what do we gain or lose by like sharing something, right? The ultimate goal behind just being transparent is actually quite connected to just the way we are. I mean, this is not to toot our own horn, but like, I think there is something interesting about just like putting out complex problems in the world so we can collectively solve them rather than rely on like me and Sharice to solve it as two people with yeah. limited perspectives. Yeah, I like the word honesty more than transparency right now as I'm thinking about it because transparency gives this idea that these are things that are okay to hide. It's almost like as if it's going to be salacious. Yeah. What else about the interview did you find interesting? As I was reading it, I think my whole revelation about what I started this conversation with, like why I was interested in, was actually quite adequately answered by answers that Willie gave. Right. And I think, you know, to, to build off of what you said before of regarding the supportive outlier, there is a question here where Willie's asked, who is in mind when you design for outlier now? And this was the answer from Willie. What you may find surprising is that the relationship between company and design is in sync. I run the company subreddit where customers talk about what they like and they know what I work on and tell me what they want to see more of. It's like a craft and fabric obsessed group. The vision of outlier has been very masculine presenting for some time now, but I'm introducing something that's a bit more vague and confusing and I actually want it to be that way. It's a gender fuck now. I'm not going to do this if I'm not able to make people think. I would say that in general, this perspective that outlier has, I wouldn't say adopted, but this, this new direction that it's allowed to take is probably done more effectively now than maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. Cause I think there's, there's something about the certain cultural landscape that allows these types of conversations to flourish versus five, 10 years ago, or maybe at the onset of outlier, it just was very difficult to push it through because it was a singular brand trying to allow people to understand a different sort of narrative that maybe they weren't comfortable with, or maybe they didn't have the the requisite knowledge, like me included, right? Like this is kind of why I think that it's at a point now where nothing really changes for the things that outlier represents. She says that overall, the whole demographic behind outlier still has the same underpinnings they can rely on. That's craft. That's an obsession with material. But now it's sort of entering this new space where, hey, let's push you to think a little bit differently, which I, in many ways, I would say outlier was doing from the get-go in terms of pioneering a new category of this sort of tech meets fashion approach. I think that's really fascinating because, like I said, it's, it's really about a, a time and a place that may not have been possible at the onset of outlier. It is about where we are as a society, but it's not just about that. It's also about, you know, at the very top of this conversation, you said about brand lineage and sort of the evolution of a brand. I think also at this point, Outlier's been around for 13 years now, founded in 2008, meaning there's a lot of foundation for them to be experimental with. Relatively speaking, yeah. Yeah. So it's there's a point of reference that Willie is building on or going from. Whereas like if you came out of the gate in this way, there there would be none of that establishment of what was this brand before, yeah. you know, and therefore there wouldn't be like that distinction of what this new type of work is like. Yeah. The last thing I want to end off on before we sort of jump into the sort of the recap is this question and answer 
The interviewer says, what's funny is oftentimes men who design women's wear will go on about the kind of women they design for. To which Willie responds, yes, and it's this total fantasy of a woman. Like, yes, women are the best. We are strong and amazing. But are you designing for an actual human being? At the end of the day, women want to look hot and feel amazing and men do too. So what I do is not gender specific, whether for outlier or for myself. I'm designing for people. People might wear clothes and sometimes say, that's the insert designer here, girl. I say, that's the Willie human, which is like an amazing way of sort of capping it off where the sort of gender neutrality is sort of encapsulated in a personality more than it's like any sort of definitive like pink is for girls, blue is for men, boys, etc. Or like this type of thing, which I've thought about a lot a little bit more recently because obviously we talk about this a lot, but another one of my favorite brands and an adjacent one to Outlier is Valence and they just released women's wear. When I look at it, it's aesthetically pretty much the same thing as Valence. Yeah. So why does it have to be called women's wear would be my question. Yeah. It's like sort of like a, a very interesting discussion around how do we like move past that? Because I think it's something that's a little bit challenging in that men's wear, women's wear, and there's definitely an overlap that can exist. But for the sake of commercialization, which is not because I want to bring it there, but because I think it needs to exist. How do you sell people down that gender neutral thing without calling it gender neutral? Yeah, I don't like I don't like the term gender neutral either. It sounds so boring. It's just like a way that exists for people to either market a little bit more efficiently or. But it's it's there are certain things that you have to be mindful of in terms of anatomy, right? Like, but not that much. I mean, Willie says it, too. Yes, there are some things that are true about anatomy, but the difference is. They have been exaggerated by marketing, essentially. Mm-hmm. The actual like functional differences in clothing for women versus men have been exaggerated by the needs of like marketing and yeah. advertising, essentially. And so I personally think that apparel should just be apparel. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to be called menswear or womenswear. I don't I don't know when we get to that point though. Yeah. You just need to be really clear on sizing. That's the thing. I think that when you move into a certain aesthetical lane, then sizing becomes a lot easier. But when you operate in a lane where fit becomes a little bit more important or it's to the vision of the designer, then you have to be a little bit more mindful. But I think, you know, what what was most clear to me after reading the interview and the piece was there just seems a lot of clarity in terms of what every party, and I don't say that in this weird sort of like business party, just like outlier willie norris the designer willie norris workshop like there's a very clear and definitive synergy between all of those parties which Mm -hmm. allows us to work but you can tell that the synergy also exists because there's been a lot of thought put into why they exist maybe less so outlier because i think it's quite clearly defined but it's more about willie norris's inclusion and participation within that Everything they do works really well. They're, they're just clear-cut boundaries in terms of where certain messaging might go, which I, I think that it's less about Willie Norris bringing her perspective directly into the realm of outlier, like from a very concrete messaging, like promote homosexuality. Like I think that's actually less, less about it. It's more about as a brand, there's an expectation on what you want out of a brand in my opinion, like when I buy a brand, it's because I have an expectation of 
call it fit, function, design, purpose, et cetera. Right. And I think that outlier, as you mentioned before, has 13 years of a foundation that people are in some ways accustomed to. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not some huge radical departure from everything that's come before. Yeah. What I like a lot, which you read and is my takeaway from this is Willie saying that it's meant to be vague and confusing and to make you think, and it's just a gender fuck now. And Willie acknowledges, oh, Outlier has a reputation of being very typically masculine presenting. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I like this idea of sort of destabilizing fashion norms or our expectations of brands. So actually what Willie's putting out, people can still be challenged to think of as masculine. You know, it's a, it might look a little different or fit a little different, but it's still within this line of the work that they've been doing, the same designer and I like that idea of like pushing people to be a little bit uncomfortable, but yeah. not so much. Like there's so much about it that's still consistent that they will be more willing to like go along with Willie and Outlier to yeah. this direction. Yeah. There is one thing that I recall from a while back, like don't, don't quote me on the exact thing, but a lot of times like in the past, Outlier has been asked if they'll do women's wear. And one of the reasons why they didn't was because they felt that they didn't have uh, the right experience to do it. Mm. So maybe it changes now. I'm not of the mindset that I can't wear outlier or valence, you know, even before they came out with what they're calling women's wear. Yeah. I don't personally feel restricted by them not saying that we don't do it. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe I'm to kind of refute what I said was like, maybe it doesn't matter anymore. Like she wants to just create this different sort of category even when it comes to anatomy i think it's a great thing to not make the distinction because also a lot of biologically born women and men don't necessarily fit into the typical masculine feminine body type mm -hmm. you can be a woman who's really tall and muscular and look really great in what i guess apparel brands are calling menswear but really is just apparel yeah. You know, so I think that's good for us to reconsider as well. Yeah. You know, the way we categorize clothing or the sizes that it should be. Yeah. I was really into this article. It's great. Yeah, I think it's, they're working. It's a really interesting like story. Yeah. So people should go look up the interview, read the yeah. whole thing. All right. My subject this week is what happens when Americans can finally exhale? The pandemic's mental wounds are still wide open. And it's written by Ed Yong, published in The Atlantic. I know last week we talked about following writers. Ed Yong is another writer I follow. I'm familiar with that name. He wrote a lot about the pandemic. Yeah. throughout the pandemic. I know that sounds silly, but he wrote a lot of pieces that were very widely circulated about the CDC, about different scientific studies that were coming out. And that was kind of a lot of people were going to him as a reliable source of information. So this piece is in that same vein. There's still a lot of doctors and scientists quoted. Currently in the States, COVID cases have been falling very quickly. The vaccination campaign can be considered relatively successful. And there's starting to be this sort of media narrative about the summer being a time of rejuvenation, 
you get to go back out. Things mm-hmm. are back to normal. There's that type of atmosphere. However, Yang points out is that people have now lived through 14 months of pandemic life and millions have endured grief, anxiety, isolation, countless different other experiences, and recovery is going to look different for everyone. I wanted to ask you to start off with what you personally define trauma as. I think trauma is something that without directly putting, you know, any sort of direct stimulus on you affects you from the inside out. Mm, that's a good definition. Just like it's something that's like an invisible force that looms over you. Yang makes a distinction between big T trauma and little T trauma. And big T trauma is like the death of a parent or, you know, being a vet, you know, having served in um, military. And then little T trauma is along the lines of losing a job or being a full-time parent and not having childcare available, sort of things that are still traumatic, but not necessarily like I said, like big T trauma. So that's just a one bit of this conversation that I thought was interesting. And he quotes Laura Van Derney Lipsky, founder and director of the Trauma Stewardship Institute, who says, people put their heads down and do what they have to do. But suddenly when there's an opening, all these feelings come up. As hard as the initial trauma is, it's the aftermath that destroys people. What he's saying is that, you know, COVID-19 wasn't just this like one time event. It was really 14 months of recurring bad things that happened. Even while things might objectively be getting better from a numbers perspective in terms of like cases and deaths and vaccines, a lot of people don't feel better about life, about where they are. And so this piece goes into like... Yeah, I don't want to jump in too No, go ahead. I was just going to ask you if you had any of the same feelings or people around you have had that kind of experience? I think the lack of human connection is the one thing I hear the most in terms of what people miss, right? What do you mean by that? Like just the ability to be in an environment with other people, whether it's strangers, whether it's your family. Like obviously us in Hong Kong has been a lot different because we've never had like a hard lockdown. Yeah, this is true. I've been able to see you theoretically when I wanted to see you, right? I see you. I've been seeing you regularly for the last however many months. Yeah. So we don't really have that same restriction on our lives. So it's a little bit harder for us to comment. But what I do see is that, you know, most recently I've had friends that have been going out because bars are now open and even certain people that might have like both their vaccination shots, they still feel a little bit weary of going out, but they still... But that doesn't mean that they're the only ones. Like there's some people that don't care and they're like, they'll be in a big crowded, sweaty room with a bunch of people. And I think that once you have that, that sort of innate human requirement, the trauma all gets pushed to the side very quickly. I mean, it obviously depends on the person. Yes. Right. Like different people are going to. We also didn't have that many deaths in Hong Kong. Yeah. Different people globally are going to process this differently depending on. Also of their experience of COVID, right? Like, did I have a close one fall ill or pass away? You know, did I lose my job? And like you said, you know, did I live in a place that had a really harsh lockdown or not like Hong Kong? But one thing that I do see to speak generally people in Hong Kong and in the States is a readjustment to their schedule, whether or not there's like a health concern. You know, like because you're talking about even if you're vaccinated, like feeling uneasy, 
there's like relearning how to organize your life mm-hmm. under different conditions. You know, like even in Hong Kong, where you know restaurants are opening up, there are events again. You know, how many events are you going to? How much of your social life do you want to have back? In a way, and I think that the trauma isn't not to make it sound like a big deal, but I do agree. Definitely, that there are things that people won't have realized about themselves that changed over the last fourteen months. What would an example that be? For example, I have a long list here of like people who might have different types of trauma. So, COVID nineteen long haulers who are still ill, people with medical bills, people who are mourning, you know, people who passed away, people who survived and feel guilty, people who became unemployed or who had a hard time finding work. Uh, full-time parents, people whose businesses suffered, or on the inverse, people whose businesses benefit from COVID and now yeah. flip side are going to suffer from when people you know, when you COVID know, dies down yeah. again. People who had life changes planned, like I had life changes planned, yeah, and things changed radically for me. Uh, students who have missed like an entire year of in-person school, Zoom. and I think sports, all lost of, sports, yeah, yeah, pe- people who lost in-person sports. I'm. I think all of that does add up to a change in your mentality that you don't realize how much you've adapted to until it goes back the other way. Yeah. yeah. Like it's almost stupid, like in the sense that for us, some of us might have enjoyed the ability to just like have a reason to stay home or to not see other people. And now they're not complaining, but they're like lamenting the fact they have to go out. You almost might feel, yeah, it is first world problems, but it's also just, I think, I think it's a global thing where it's like, you got used to one way of having control over your life or not having control over your life. And now you have to redefine those parameters. Yeah. And there's been like a lot of expectation, I think, of people to be resilient and adaptable. And eventually, like, I think that stress might become too much for certain people, not like everyone. Yeah. Like COVID was in some ways an opportunity for people to just be noncommittal. Like everything was, oh, blame it on COVID. Like something was delayed COVID or I don't want to see you. I don't leave the house COVID. Right. I think that's a relearning process too. Right. Like for me, I've in some ways also adapted that it's a, it's a easy reason to not want to go to something or I have like other scheduling commitments that have caught up. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was saying I had a lot of like soccer, football to play, like that obviously ate into other things. Yeah, of course. Right? You only have so much time, right? In general, like I understand the traumatic element of it, but I think that in some ways trauma is best remedied if you're that type of person amongst other people, right? You didn't even read the article. I didn't even read the article. You know where this goes. But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I think it's so easy for these traumatic events to not be forgotten, but to be managed by yeah, virtue of, of us being able to see each other. Yeah, so Ed Yong spoke with UC Irvine's Roxanne Cohen-Silver, a psychologist who studied trauma. And Silver said, three factors protect people from PTSD. Confidence in authorities, a sense of belonging, and community solidarity. The second and third one are really just like you going out and seeing other people, your friends. I mean, belonging, I think, is deeper than that, than just seeing friends. Yeah, I mean, but I think the sense of belonging and a reinforcement But it's something you can do. You know, you can go out and go back and yeah. be with the people you want to be with and be intentional about having the conversations that you want to have. Like if I see you and you and you make me feel like good about myself or I belong yeah. to this 
subgroup. Yeah. Well, if I make you feel unwanted and miserable, right. you should really cut that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the problem with this is that for some people, the pandemic eroded all three of those things. <laughs> <laughs> authority for sure. Yeah. Authority. For a lot of people. Gosh, man. Yeah. Definitely eroded trust Dude, in all types of authorities. It's so crazy. I was, this is an aside, but unfortunately in Taiwan, there's been a massive spike in the last few days. And Taiwan, who is seen as sort of on this pedestal of people that managed it well, Taiwanese prime minister, her ratings dropped significantly. Well, yeah, like it's going 50%, to. Yeah. Despite the fact it was managed quite well, it still wasn't that high. <sighs> yeah. But what, what I'm trying no, to say is that like, I, even you a place can lose yeah. trust so quick. I think that's what this demonstrates. Trust is hard to gain, but so, so easy to lose like Choi Ing-wen did great over the last 14 months yeah. and all it takes is right now to have a spike and all of that goodwill yeah disappears you yeah. know and I, I get that so that's I mean, that's why I think two and three are definitely more within our control the sense of belonging and community solidarity but just recognizing unfortunately that because of the pandemic in other places of the world people haven't gotten to see their friends and family yeah. for a long time I also thought this was a really interesting part about the article where under crisis, there are two phenomena. The first is that people become apathetic to suffering at a mass scale. And this is what psychologist Paul Slovic calls psychic numbing. And at the same time, people also become sensitized to further traumas in their own life. So people who experience successive disasters don't habituate each new blow brings more stress mm. so it's really two pronged bad things one is that you become apathetic to mass suffering so let's say you look at the news in india and you feel nothing you don't feel particularly moved by it when under less crisis intense situations you would be and then the other bad effect of ongoing crisis is that if you let's say lost a loved one and then you lose your job and then your house needs to undergo renovations each thing doesn't mean that you handle it better. Mm -hmm. it, it's like a multiplier. Yeah. It's like a stress it's like compounding thing. Yeah. I do. Back to your first point, I think you mentioned it last week. We've never been in a position to have to care about so many things outside of our immediate circle, yeah. our immediate community. Like, I mean, I'm caring about things or I'm familiar with things that are going on in the Middle East, in India, North America, Canada. Now, what is it? What's the most recent one? Ryanair. Israel and Palestine. Oh, no, Ryanair. The Ryanair thing. Like so many things that you have to kind of like just keep tabs on. And, yeah, and I it's think not even I'm seeking it out. It's just like it enters my my bubble, right? My content bubble. Like I know in my head that I'm not at fault for these things happening. And I'm definitely not like to be blamed for not, you know, fixing a problem or even responsible for like having compassion. But I still feel like I should, but not really able to like mm -hmm. muster that much feeling for everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's kind of nice to have like a somewhat scientific explanation for why that is that mm -hmm. like the human brain reacts this way to long-term crisis. Yeah. Where I wanted to go with this, which I think does relate on a creative level is to talk about grief and mourning. Ed Young said in the article in the States, they're not very good at grief and mourning as a general statement. Um, but he mentioned that and he 
said that we tend to use consumption to fix ourselves when we feel like we want to grieve. Mm -hmm. Instead of some sort of like more healthy way of processing the grief, we use consumerism. I thought that was an he honestly it was like two sentences, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Did you wish that he had expanded more? I do. I think could be a whole other article. Yeah, I think that managing grief through consumption is actually not well documented in the sense that like there's a lot of studies, but I think it's well documented in the way that there's even a cultural phenomenon around retail therapy, right? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like speculate, but I feel like retail therapy traditionally happened on a smaller scale, which is like, oh, you broke up with your boyfriend, go and shop the pain away. Yeah. Like it's really just an evolution of that, right? Whether it's different, I don't think so, because it's trying to achieve the same outcome of like washing away pain or like pushing it off to the side, I should say. Yeah. I wanted to expand it, not just consumerism as a participant, but also being a generator of consumerism as a way to get over grief. I'm not saying that creatives aren't allowed to like make things and sell things. Maybe there is a part of the like making and selling like plush toys, for example, like if you're Mm -hmm. an illustrator that is trying to ignore your having to like process feelings of loss and trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a stretch, but that's just where my mind went in thinking about like consumerism and grief. How do you mourn something? It doesn't have to be COVID related, just like loss in your life. I think I've, I've generally just tried to flip it and just look at the, the positive aspect of it. So for example, like a friend's grandma passed away. And like, albeit she was, she's quite old. Like she was like 107 years old, right? So you, in those instances, it's like you kind of knew it was potentially going to come, but also it's like a celebration of the impact they've had on your life. Like that to me seems like the best way of doing it. I don't really have like this aspect of like mourning or like trauma or whatnot. Like I have to move on, but then that's easier said than done. I'm, I'm probably an atypical person when it comes to the sort of emotional events. I mean, I don't know. I can't say if you are well, you know typical or not. Theoretically like less emotional than most people, you know, probably. Okay. We've, Known each other a while. And yes, I would default to describe you that way. But is that truly the reality of how you are? Yeah. Okay. But like, also, you know why? I think it goes like, back there's to... There's no like face that you're putting up here of like resilience and like well, able to bounce back. But the resilience is probably a byproduct of, interestingly enough, everything we, we kind of discussed in the first segment around just like this massive amount of like analysis over like your feelings the world around you and that in in theory sort of defines and guides and creates your framework sure that's the way i look at it i'm like like most recently i've been thinking about like things that are inevitably going to happen right like someone's going to pass away in your life like yeah and i've had that happen not necessarily to the point where like it was my parents passing away or whatnot but at some point that that could happen right i've well it Yes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, b- b- death but what is I'm inevitable. Saying, no, but like they could, I could pass it for them is what I mean. Like okay, whatever yes. it might be. Yeah. That's what I was kind I mean, of getting at. Touch wood, but yeah. Yeah. But those are things that I was thinking about. I'm like, well, I think it's, it's, it's something that I've tried a lot of my life, but not, not because I'm like preparing for trauma. It's more about, I just like to, I just don't like to be surprised by things. Sure. And like thinking about alternative scenarios, like 
all day, every day, like that kind of prepares you for things. I'm so much the other side of this where I I do think I think a lot <laughs> and analyze the situation, but I'm not able to think myself out of feeling the feelings I have in relation no. to events. But I, I, I'm, I'm not saying people should not have feelings so much as like know how to harness and know how to move past. I mean, I think the thinking helps to think honestly about loss does help process it. I don't know if I would say for myself that it moves me significantly quicker along to like getting through that trauma. Like I think for me, things takes years. Yeah. Like honestly, like I look back, I reflect on like key moments of grief in my life and am still processing them. Yeah. Like my grandfather passed away in 2010. So that's 11 years now. Yeah. I'm not saying like I'm broken up every day, but I, I would easily recognize that there is still loss that I feel. Yeah. So, but I also want to say like, I think that's okay. Yeah. No one, like you can't just like, I'm, I'm never going to tell someone to not feel some type of way about something. Well, also so I just, as, I kind of yeah. think that maybe it's just like a part of your basic emotions, like your basic makeup as a mm -hmm. person. Yeah. It's okay to live with some amount of grief in your life yeah. as like a baseline. Whether it's problematic or not, it's more so when it consumes you and you want to move forward, but you don't know how to move forward. Sure. That's yes. sort of what I'm getting at. I mean, at. that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Young has this ability, in my opinion, to help bring, this is related, help bring analysis to emotions that you might not have articulated. Yeah. So I think like this Atlantic article does a good job of potentially explaining to people um, in greater detail some of the context as to like why you might be feeling the way you do right now. I would say that in general, that's what great writers, great journalists do. They just help you understand and bring clarity to topics of interest, right? Yeah. Good place to wrap up. Yeah. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in these conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.